Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Let me conclude here a little bit. As much as there may be wrong with John Howard Yoder, he gets so much of this right. You know, you can critique his history or you know other things and imagine that he's primarily dealing in history. But I think we may miss that he's actually, what he's really doing is a theology, and his theology, I think, is right. And that is, he begins with the notion of an original peace, a nonviolent God. You know, you can just go back through the church fathers, Irenaeus, you know, God is nonviolent. God does not use force. And this original peace is then portrayed in Christ. This is why we know who God is as a peaceable God is to be found in Christ. And so we can't trace this. You know, Brian, what you said has that this is an individual thing. It has to do with the individual psyche. I think what we wish were the case is that I could depend upon the institution of the church. I wish that I could depend upon history because we are what, what is being described historically is kind of a failure. The way that I've I've betrayed this before, though, is that who writes the history is determinative of what gets written. And of course, it's never the case that the oppressed, the peacemakers, that the true history of the church or the true history of the gospel is going to be written. And here I'll quote Hart. I think Hart gets this part right. Belief in the mysterious workings of God through the inherent ambiguities and contradictions of human history, especially the history of the church, keeps us from indulging either in sanctimonious denunciations of Constantinianism or in triumphalist apostrophes to the spiritual greatness of Christian culture. In either case, reducing the very concept of grace to an empty cipher. What he's saying, we may not be able to find this thing in either Constantinianism or in, you know, even in reactions to Constantinianism. And so Hart, I think, gets, you know, he he tells the story. You know, reading Hart on church history can be kind of depressing, but I think he's mostly right. But he's also right, yeah, but the grace of God shines through, and we may not be able to trace that, that we can survey the ruins of Christendom, and his he's ideas, yeah, but you got to retain a little bit of providentialism, belief in the mysterious workings of God, and the ambiguities are there. In other words, the gospel's all we got that the history of the church is is going to fail us, the history of the institution will fail us. And so when we, we're talking about putting on this armor, I think we've already divested of ourselves of the notion that the institution of the church, of preachers, of popes, of kings, that they've successfully instituted the gospel. That's not where the gospel gets instituted or gets, you know, it takes hold. 
that is part of the point of the gospel, and it is our a reversal of our understanding of power, our reversal of our understanding of institutions. That is, we, that we might imagine a kind of Christian triumphalism. That's what the you know, that's the excitement about the Constantinian shift. People thought, oh, now we're really seeing God at work in history. It's true the church disappeared, you know, literally, in Augustinianism. He says the church has become invisible, but now we can see God at work in history. This is exactly wrong, right? Because what we're describing is the mystery is that Christ's triumph is a form that cannot be historicized in that sense. And the other thing is that we are, throughout, we've been describing, I think, imitation, putting on the armor, uh, theosis, divination. I'm going to say this. I'm not saying it exactly right, but let me say it and then correct myself. I think it is centered. That power takes hold within us. I think certainly we can do this corporately, and Paul is describing that in the body of Christ, you know, being strong in the Lord. I, I think there is a corporate aspect to that. But I also think that, as Brian pointed out, yeah, but this has to do with the human psyche. Yoder says, Constantinianism is at its most fundamental level not ecclesiological or eschatological, but theological. And Yoder, it's not that Yoder thought, oh, if they did Constantinianism better, that it could have worked out. No, his point is that the most, it doesn't matter how you do it, if it involves coercion and violence, uh, it can't be the gospel. And so insofar as Christ is the true form of God and humanity, Christian ethics must assume the same form as God. Imitate God. Be imitators of God. That's the command. And so Yoder is picturing that there's been a fundamental shift. I think this fundamental shift makes us misread Ephesians 6. The, the shift is a deep shift in the relationship of church and world. This is Yoder. Our concern is not with Constantine the man, says Yoder, nor do we su uh, suggest that the year 311 represented an immediate reversal without preparation or unfolding. Nonetheless, the medieval legend which made of Constantine the symbol of an epical shift was realistic. He stands for a new era in the history of Christianity, and that is the church became invisible, and I think it remains invisible. Is that too strong? And the only point of visibility is the Ephesians 6 kind of resistance to the powers. Only where Christians resist evil with the armor of God does the church show itself. Otherwise, it remains invisible, right? Could it be otherwise? If you're not resisting the powers and you become the powers, you're not the church. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the powers, the world forces of darkness. And so the church with Constantine stands with the rulers, the powers, the spiritual forces. And where the church, you know, before that was persecuted, it was perfectly visible. Everybody understood where it was. But this formally persecuted, voluntary, 
seemingly insignificant community. You know, with Constantine, it seemed to enjoy a kind of relief, and, you know, we all agree that's good. But the swell, you know, this is Yoder. He says, the swell of its ranks undermined conversion as a voluntary assumption of a precarious way of life and indicated more a de facto or compulsory acceptance of the privileged life of the Christian community in the Christian empire. And so the distinctive visibility of the church gradually recedes as the two realities, church and world, were fused. He says, this new social situation precipitated fundamental shifts in Christian ethical thinking. The transition from pre-Constantinian messianic minority ethics to post-Constantinian establishment power ethics is the transition from early Christian pacifism to later Christian embrace of soldiering as a proper Christian duty, and it concretely epitomizes the kind of moral shift tacit in every form of Constantinianism. Where we can be literal soldiers for Christ, we've missed what it means to put on the armor of God. Paul, I have a question. You talked there about, um, that was Wink? That was Yoder. Or that was Yoder. Okay. So Yoder talks there about two realities. So let me just rewind real quick about, you know, what we've been doing in the class. So we've been, you know, we talked about, you know, is it nature and grace? Is it is it creation and deification? In other words, that we would partition out, you know, two realities um you know that we said no actually you know nature is grace and that creation is deification and we've been sort of working out the unity of all that in ephesians and how saint paul is is presenting that you know that unified vision of reality and so while i would want to say that you know that there is a partition between good and evil right i mean that that is is that uh, but maybe it's a what Hart is called a provisional dualism or whatever that is, is that the, you know, the darkness can't overcome the light and that evil is a sort of a temporary, finite non-participation in the good, you know, so therefore it's not like a dualism, right? My question is, and I don't know the answer, is that might we make the same mistake by partitioning off the church and the state? And, and to think of th- these things in, you know, sort of two realities, two orders, or are you saying no, but that is, that is how the, the order of darkness manifests itself. That is how the powers, you know, um, that, that, that in the same way that you can't, that you do have to partition off good and evil, that sort of carries over into the relationship with the, with the church and the state, right? That there really is a wall there. Is that what you're, is that kind of what you're describing or is something else at play here with, you know, with Constantinian, the the shift there, the, you know, the spread of the gospel, this is, gets very complicated. But my, I guess my basic question is though, does Paul have a vision that's a unified vision when it comes to things like nature and grace, creation and deification, et cetera. But then when it comes to the church and the state, actually there is sort of a, a, a you know, a, a dividing wall there. Well, it's a, it's a wonderful question. And I'm probably not up to answering it because it's a very difficult thing to negotiate because we do live in a, in a supposed democratic 
uh, you know, society in which we do have a voice. And so I certainly think that as in as much as we are able, we should be, we should influence, maybe participate, uh, be salt and light. But I also think we that there ultimately is you're not going to invent convince the state to be Christian. There is no such thing as national religion, you know, uh, that is Christianity. I mean, we have that thing we call, you know, the national religion in this country is more or less Christianity. White Anglo-Saxon Protestantism, it's also a kind of racist understanding. So uh, that you're never going to convince the state, in other words, it does exist by means of power uh, according to the definition of the barrel of a gun. So I think you can go so far that we do need to influence, we need to participate, but we're not going to convert the nation state. We're not going to make the nation state Christian. You know, this is the this is the story, this is the narrative I get from my right-wing evangelical friends. Uh, the, the, the United States used to be a Christian nation, and now we've kind of fallen away from that. That's just a misunderstanding of what a nation state is and a misunderstanding of what Christianity is. No, so I do in the end. It's a myth. It's a myth. The myth of the Christian nation. Yeah. On this question, I know you're getting ready to interview Jordan Wood tomorrow. Yeah. Have you had any questions on your mind about Maximus that address what Matt just asked right there about um, the distinction between society and church and Christ filling all things? Because I, I can't quite formulate a question, and I want to ask, I want to give you a question, submit you a question to ask Jordan Wood. I'm not well-read enough in Maximus to be able to, but it seemed like there's a, a pretty radical departure in interpreting Maximus about this very issue. Like, is the society um, of Christendom just kind of the church shrouded in mystery and hiddenness, but also in uh, actuality. I wish you would. I wish you would send me that question, Brian. I don't have it yet. It's it's up here. I, I do. I want to send you a question, but I, I'm not. I'm not sure I'll have it by daybreak. I'm just, yeah, yeah. No, it's a good question. Of course, I guess that Maximus had his right hand cut off, his tongue torn out by the emperor. So maybe he. He did, but then there's that there's that whole passage in Revelation, you know, that the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdom of our God. And that's I don't know, the you know. that's the eschaton, and I don't think we're there yet. Yeah, that's and, yeah. But that's it's the still way, a great question. That yeah, it's a good question. I hope you'll send me something just to remind me, Brian. And I'll try okay. to work on. But you understand that's the what what, and this is partly Yoder too. What Yoder saw with this shift in the relationship between church and history, we get people like we had in our my tradition, not just mine, but Austin and Matt, you were there, and David. And that is that Alexander Campbell talked about the United States as the city set on a hill. The early you know Christians in this country thought of the United States as the you know here is the eschaton, here is the kingdom of God. And of course, even Campbell, after this, you know, he comes to, I think, but of course, it's a foolish notion that he, I think, is disinvested of. 
Am I right, David? Did he ever give that up? Um, I feel like near the end of his life and maybe towards, what was it, around the Civil War, he kind of, I mean, he really kind of made a move, I think, towards nonviolence and peace. Um, I don't know that he totally gave up uh, America as a city on a hill, but I, um, I think he, uh, he kind of pushed towards a more of a nonviolence. That was a common belief, and that's still there. I don't know about you guys, but that's that's just that's pervasive. You know, the people that I'm I'm around. I'm in the um, middle of Missouri here, so I'm, you're probably in more enlightened societies. Now Lipscomb, he uh, I don't think he bought into that. No, he did not. David Lipscomb, yeah. did not. Yeah. I mean, there is yeah. the subversive part of the gospel, Paul. That. You know, we've talked about before where, you know, just the incarnation itself uh, and the teachings of Christ, how, you know, it was an apocalyptic inbreaking. The world really did change. You know, our whole notion of what love is, our whole, you know, mercy. Um, you know, we, we've been conditioned by 2000 years of the church's involvement with the state where perhaps, and that's a hard perhaps, you know, the, the state may have learned a thing or two from the church about, in other words, like where, what would America be without a Dr. King or without, you know, some of these other guys, and, and the way that yeah. you see yeah. what I'm saying, the way that Christianity has informed in the, maybe the American conscience and things like that, you know, uh, now I don't know how that's, you can explain the nuclear bombs that were dropped in Japan and um, perhaps it would have even been, you know, in slavery and all the other, the genocide that, that, you know, started it all here in the United States with the, with the indigenous population, you know? So I don't know how that's in any way Christian, but that's the other side of it is, is that, yeah, but the Christ really did overthrow the, the powers and a new, you know, a new order really was um, installed. That's, that's, that's like the, maybe a, a more sort of um, optimistic view, uh, right, of things. Well, it's both. Um, In other words, that yeah, I think I think what you're saying is true, but it's also, of course, the and this is kind of Gerard that you know things are getting better and better, and they're getting worse and worse simultaneously. That that we do have a kind. Of, I think we're all in favor of some form of you know liberal democratic. You know that that's probably as good as it's going to get. But it's also a society that is bent upon mutually assured destruction, and that's eventually got to come to a head. And it's not going to be through the conversion of the nation state. Let me let me close with this one quote from Yoder. Before Constantine, one knew as a fact of everyday experience that there was a believing community, but one had to take it on faith that God was governing history. After Constantine, one had to believe without seeing that there was a community of believers within the larger nominally Christian mass, but one knew for a fact that God was in control of history. There's the shift. And I think we live with that shift. And so effectiveness, and that's always what we're discussing, you know, and inevitably we get dragged into the argument of the effectiveness of Christ's gospel, the peaceable gospel, and it's refuted on the basis that it won't work. Right? I mean, that's what we're saying in the what-if scenarios. This will never work. And so the interpretation, the interruption of the kingdom of God in history 
this is Yoder, through Christ's particular history, which is the arrival of the new age, that coexists with the old, is effectively tempered and rendered invisible in the Constantinian shift. And so we kind of have a fusion, or an imagined fusion, of the two ages, in which perhaps the greatest heretical thinking is in the area of eschatology and ecclesiology, for that matter. And so everything becomes judged by its effectiveness. So this is, uh, this is Nathan Kerr. Constantinianism most fundamentally names a certain orientation toward the political meaning of history, which is rooted in a heretical eschatology based upon a misconception of the relation of Christ to history. Most importantly, Constantinianism proceeds as if what happened in the cross, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus had not profoundly altered history, and it provides for the church a way of acting politically in history, which is not entirely determined by the lordship of Jesus Christ. I think that when we opt out of a nonviolent, peaceable gospel, we're opting out of the lordship of Jesus Christ. And so the way that we do this thing is Ephesians chapter 6. And I'm happy that this may be too much, too, too strong. And I'm obviously allowing for the grace of God working among all of us, but I think we need to clear, be clear about the nature of the gospel and its inclusiveness of peace. But let's just pretend we're all on a deserted island and we're going to start a church. Would it be a suggestion that we might discuss to start a narrative, not only including, like in Genesis, the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life, but the Cain and, a Cain and Abel story, the violence? Could that be included in a primary narrative, sort of like bound together? That's the a very Eastern Orthodox understanding, and of course, it's there in the, uh, you know, that actually sin is a, a tied. Am I right on this, Matt? Originally, to the picture of Cain killing Abel, that the, the contagion contagion of death had spread. All right, but if you want the, you know, the true gospel. David Bentley Hart's uh, second edition of the New Testament's coming out tomorrow, so you can read it there. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. By the way, I, the last part of this where I was referencing Yoder is actually an article by Jordan Wood. He has a profound uh, appreciation of John Howard Yoder and the Gospel of Peace, and I think it's no mistake that it, that goes with, uh, you know, That'll be a question. I think that goes with Maximus' picture of, of creation is incarnation. Jonathan, you, you answered the one about how this study of Ephesians uh, has kind of changed up your view. Can you give us your answer to that one? Yeah, I, I, you know, this has profoundly changed my view of Ephesians. And um, I, I responded by saying, my, yes, my view has changed. Ephesians seemed to be a book um, that was good to mine some proof text from to be used or misused to bolster uh, theological positions that had been previously established. Ephesians 2.8 on personal salvation, 3.10 on the role of the church, and 
defending God's character, 522 on headship, many verses relating to the church and its function, and the list goes on. The idea that there was a bigger message in Ephesians that Paul is saying something profoundly insightful into the work of God through Christ probably should have occurred to me previously, but it really hadn't, I'm sorry to say. The insight that Ephesians is the heart of Paul's thinking is paradigm shifting, that the gospel is seen in Ephesians as essential in understanding God's work in Christ and the cosmic reconciliation that it portrays was not something I previously understood. So the unity that God creates through Christ and that leads to peace and that reveals the mystery now seems obvious and thematic since taking this class. Although I might have come up with unity on a list of things Ephesians was about before, it probably would have been a much narrower view of unity. Understanding the destruction of the dividing wall of hostility and the enmity it creates, aided by the insight that Berger's view of reification provides, has helped me see Christ's life, death, and resurrection is not only defeating the powers of death, but revealing the way earthly systems function. And this has helped deepen my understanding of the atonement. Ever since giving up a penal legal view of the cross as the primary lens that the cross should be viewed through, I feel like I understood that a major reason the cross was necessary was revelation. And I could stumble through some explanations that made sense about what was being revealed, but I lacked a coherent framework to work in. I'm really happy to have the understanding that I now have regarding the revealing of the mystery and the tearing down of the dividing wall. I'm confident that the cross didn't just accomplish something for us, sight unseen in the mind of God. It wasn't the answer to a legal problem that God needed, but it is the power to transform the way we actually understand reality and interact with humanity. It does away with enmity in Paul's language, hostility. The antagonism between peoples of ethnic, you know, religious differences, it is an undoing of the powers that must all be equated, right? I'm just rifting off what you said, Jonathan. Uh, that's kind of where we've been in this class, that if Ephesians 6 is a summation of the whole book, then what we're talking about is this newfound peace in which the hostility, enmity, violence, uh, and all that went with that is undone, and there is an overcoming of the powers. There's a real-world defeat of the powers, uh, at least among Christians, in the visible church. I'm just saying what you said. <laughs> yeah, You said it a lot better. <laughs> no. <laughs> Brian... You had, I liked your answer on this. Uh, can you read the discussion question and tell us what your answer to it was? Sure. It kind of goes back to the other question, but uh, I wondered where you got in the video. You said something to Jason about sit, walk, and stand being the themes of the two chapters at a time throughout the book. Um, Did I say that? <laughs> yeah, in the video. And it sounded like Watchman Knee. You're familiar with Watchman Knee? Yeah, yeah. So that's what it sounded like to me. But you said you read it from somebody else. I just wondered if you, well, to remind you that um, sitting is seated with Christ in the heavenly places and then walking is, I guess, starting in Rome, in uh, Ephesians 4 and then standing against the, uh, to, to stand with the armor of God. I thought that was good little summary. But anyway, um, the question in discussion is, as we read chapter six and here get into Philemon next week, one of the topics that emerges 
is how the gospel addresses oppressive systems like slavery to bring about true reconciliation. Based so far on the way Paul addresses the issue here, how does his approach to slavery square with the claims that Jesus has unified us? What I came up with was recognizing that the household code passages, if you take them outside of their context of the, the radical nature of the gospel, um, you get something that is, in our case, very modern. Uh, and, and whether it's, and this came out in the, the article we read online last week, it's either uh, the conservative view that claims that, yes, Christ's and God's, uh, you know, design for us is some sort of inequality. And that's what the, the Bible says. And that settles it. And that's what I believe. Or it discredits Paul, for instance, or other biblical writers to say that they were not fully radical. Um, the gospel itself peacefully dismantles normally functioning household and societal structures that are often fraught with the implicit strife of personal and oppressive inequalities. And I said that just to, to take it as a fact that families and societies have structures that, that, that are dismantled, undone by the gospel. Um, in the case of Ephesians, it is the unity and the peace achieved uh, and called for and then empowered by Christ through his death and resurrection as uh, this mystery is the very identity and calling of the church. And I was struck in the video in Paul's and Jason's use of the, the imagery of leavening, yeast leavening the dough how the gospel addresses oppressive systems in history uh, in human societies is not so much, well, it's by the analogy of, of yeast leavening the dough of history from the center, it's an apocalyptic sort of movement or action in that it happens from the center outward and not necessarily as a, um, Certainly from our perspective, we can think that we are in some privileged place in the flow of history and that we and our culture know better than another culture and that we can say how the, the gospel penetrates societies. As Christians, we are not meant to deconstruct society in a revolutionary Marxist or reversed oppressive manner that would fail to reconcile both parties involved. Yeah, that really comes out in Philemon. So when we talk next time about about some uh, practical example of this, it, it should be really clear um, that it leaves intact for both parties, both the master and the slave, their, their wills and motivation of love to submit uh, to one another, ultimately, uh, by submitting to Christ. And that's the grounds of any reconciliation. And this gets back to something we've talked about already, but the fact that in modernity, it's very much taken that form of revolution and violence. Uh, I think y'all mentioned the Civil War as, you know, something that was necessary, quote unquote, necessary to end, end slavery. Back to Matt's question, it's kind of like, how did the gospel affect the end of slavery 
and it also include war, ultimately, is a tricky question. Beneath the common history of two seemingly divergent and opposing interpretations and uses of the household, household code passages, wherein we see them either as justification of blatant inequalities or as reasons to discredit the writings of the apostles, not as fully or radically or sufficiently socially progressive. Beneath both of these interpretations is an assumption about church and society that conflates the two in some form of Christian or post-Christian ideology, whether nationalism or Constantinianism or Marxism or progressivism, as a result of missing the core gospel message as the context for the household codes. The way that Paul, the gospel, and the, the apostolic witness um, affects change in society, I think I even read somewhere that it was maybe so obviously disruptive to household codes that these things had to be stated. That's pretty radical. But that also the things that Paul is actually saying, when you put it in the context of that radical disruption, goes even deeper than some trite or surface violence-driven power that uh, does away with the evil oppressor. I said this very succinctly, but I saw a lot in, and that's obviously a reflection on multiple classes, but also uh, specifically this one in, in Ephesians. It's been really uh, eye-opening about church and society, um, but I still can't answer Matt's question. That's, that's a good one. Yeah, there's clearly a, a, a ferment taking place that is a byproduct of the gospel in which at least uh, slavery is no longer the accepted norm. You know, this is, we'll do this next week, but this is N.T. Wright's thing. You know, oh, you could take the book of Philemon, strangely enough, this short little book, and you have encapsulated the whole gospel. And I think that, that yeah, we've seen that effect, that there is a real-world overcoming of slavery. And Brent, you had a similar thought that, you know, I, I think that there is at the heart of, a, at the, heart of the gospel— a kind of undoing of these institutions as they existed in that cultural setting, but it is a radical subordination in which they're undone, not through a head-on confrontation, but through this sort of mutual submission. I don't know if that's a, a very satisfying answer, Brent. I think so. I'm a little bit sympathetic with an understanding that there there may be an over accommodation in certain books that i think that if we're going to emphasize what paul is doing you know there really is in philemon and in this understanding even in marriage there is a kind of undoing of an, an implicit undoing of these institutions but he also is dealing with, and of course, again, I, uh, you know, what is Pauline and what is not Pauline is not exactly clear. But there is the having to deal with just the the oppression of these cultural institutions as they existed and how to negotiate that. Yeah, I mean, you know, what fellowship does Christ have with you know Belial? You know, so it, it, it's 
in late modern capitalist America, you know, it's become sort of a, almost a pure nihilism, right? Where the acquisition of wealth, you know, at the cost of destroying the earth and destroying people and uh, is, is obviously a clear sort of nihilism. So what is there to be saved? You know, what, what is there to be redeemed? Um, in, in not, can, is nihilism redeemable? not in and of itself, right? It would have to not, it would have to become not nihilistic, you know, (laughs) by definition, that's what, you know, nihilism would have to repent of its nihilism to be saved. The logic of whatever America has become, you know, with all of its uh, nihilism, that's the thing about King, you know, he wondered at the end of his life, if, um, you know, if America could be saved, can Rome be saved? You know, can America be saved? You know, could Persia or Babylon or it doesn't, you know, history shows us over and over that these um, these nation states are not, in fact, saved. They pass away into the sort of the, the ashes and dust of history or whatever, but that the Church of Christ is still here. That's Napoleon, right? Napoleon said that, look at Jesus Christ. He said that myself and Charlemagne and have conquered the, the whole world, you know, he said, but uh, but Jesus Christ and his, you know, he still has followers that are willing to die for him by the thousands. And he never, you know, he never used violence. He, you know, he, he, people willingly subject themselves to him in obedience. You know, he never had to use violence. So I guess that's the question. It's like, you know, even evil isn't redeemable. It's just, a, it's a hard question. It's like, you know, in, in order for evil itself to be redeemed, it would have to cease being evil, Right. How can a how can a state or or, or a person or anybody uh, be saved apart from theosis, being joined to Christ? You know, and if what Paul said that it was true, the kingdoms of this world are never going to take up the cross and follow Jesus. It's you know Pilate and Caiaphas, you know, um, or are they? You know, it's it's interesting. The Herod and Pilate become friends. They were enemies. Until, you know, until the, it, it, it all came down to Jesus. And then they finally, you know, they became friends. That, so Jesus even brought peace between them, ironically enough. You know, Jesus brought a peace between Pilate and Herod. It's interesting. You know, the religious and, and political authorities, they, they kind of, they made peace. They came Rome. together to, to make war on Christ. Roman Israel joined. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, we have no, we have no king but Caesar, you know. Yeah. So these are dark, you know, this is a dark topic, really, because we're presuming that the state has like a soul that can be saved. But if 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 it's if it's really a failure to be in some way, right? If the state is a by definition sort of a failure to fully exist, right? Like in the Christian sense, it fails to be Christian. It fails to be human. It fails to be divine. Then it's destined by nature, quote unquote by nature to to pass away. And I think we can get caught up in the matrix of a kind of unreality. And, of course, the matrix goes all the way across. Step one, you know, in the marriage relationship, that if we imagine that patriarchy and the, you know, male headship we as we have it, if we imagine that's Christianity, and, and that's a very real thing in which I'm afraid people's lives are being destroyed. We can do the same thing in racial oppression, though in this country we've kind of, at least a overt chattel slavery no longer exists. Nonetheless, there is a kind of racist inclination 
and still the willingness to put brown and black people into a kind of slave-like situation for the economy. And people can do that in the name of Christ. The same thing in terms of the nation-state. If we imagine that it is Christ working in and through the nation-state, I'm afraid that this, the gospel here, too, has been subverted. In other words, if we imagine that the institutions as we have them are what is Christian and what is being preserved, I'm afraid we've missed the gospel. And as much as the household codes have been used, and Jonathan, you've said this, and Brent, you, you hinted at it, in as much as these household codes have been twisted to in, in some way support patriarchy, slavery, racism, then obviously we've missed the gospel. So that's not the, the household codes. There's something uh, that they may be, a pro- there's certainly a problem uh, in the way that they've been utilized. I just kept thinking of uh, Richard Niebuhr's book, Christ and Culture, how this question of church and, church and society, Christ and culture, uh, the proper model or the different models of fleshed out in history and very much the modern response to the household codes or the modern use of or understanding them outside the context of a radical, peaceable kingdom, deep unity gospel is where he got, got those. Uh, the, the four, I've got the book here and, and I'll just read the, the contents. <clears throat> He's got Christ against culture, the Christ of culture, and Christ above culture, which is kind of the high Middle Ages Catholic or scholastic view, I think. And Christ and culture in paradox, which is the Lutheran, the dualist. And then Christ, the transformer of culture. And that's where Niebuhr ends in describing a proper relationship. But that one's so wide open. You still so many questions remain about, well, what's still, what's the relationship of Christ and culture if he transforms through the church or, you know. Just, and I like, I like the, uh, the peculiar people, Rodney Clapp. He does a nice job with this. Uh, have you read that, Brian? No. Uh, it's a very simple book. You could use this almost in Sunday school. He goes through neighbors, various alternatives, and then he proposes Christ as culture. And I think I like that. that in other words, the church is a culture. It's a distinctive culture. It's a distinctive people. It's a, a a kingdom unto itself. It has its own government. It governs in a different way. It has its own economy. It has its own eating practices. It has its own music. Now, that that understanding, I think, is that's really the ideal that we're striving for. But obviously, in that. It's not that in some way we can rid ourselves mm. of the culture that we're all a part of, but I think that that should be the teaching of the church, that, oh, no, we're, we're to be distinctive culturally. I'm working against the grain of my own—I uh, I get up and preach every Sunday in front of an American flag. They're not going to take that flag out. I preach in a church where the women, for the most part, Their lives have been shaped by a kind of Christian patriarchy. I don't think it's going to change anytime soon. And you can almost see this kind of tragically working out. Uh, It's not that I'm uh, accommodating. I speak out against that 
but I don't know. Uh, it doesn't get heard. In other words, it's just, it's so ingrained that it's hard for people to hear uh, the, the idea. Oh, no, actually, uh, what Jesus taught was equality. What Jesus taught was that we are to be a distinctive, peculiar people. And we can name these things, you know, very clearly. Uh, so I think in the end, I think Niebuhr failed. Yeah. I, you know, the problem is, Paul, is I think that no matter what we do with that question that Brian and I have been kind of going back and forth with, with, you know, the uh, the church and state, I, you, no matter what we say, I think if you look back through history, it's clear that, you know, rather than the state being transfigured by the church, it's been the opposite, that the church has been transfigured in some way by the state, right? Like that seems to be the painful sort of reality of the situation and perhaps even the culture of the world has transfigured the culture of the church, et cetera. We sometimes have to just kind of call it what it is. Right. And just say, um, yeah, this is how it's happened. And that Christendom subverted itself. Uh, it could never, it could never, uh, and that's heart, you know, and heart, you know, there's no one darker than heart on this note. Right. But you also have to come through and the grace of God nonetheless has been at work. Uh, even though we may not always be able to trace that. Yeah, but I think that's part of the naming the powers, is to, once you name this thing, then you understand why the gospel is called for, why we need a gospel, why we need an intervention of like that of Christ, because this thing otherwise is overwhelming. And the people who sat in darkness saw a great light. And preach it boldly to all because the church and the world need it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We all need it, you know. So it does, in some ways, it doesn't matter if there's a distinction or if there's a hard line or not. You know, it's the same message to everybody. Yeah. Hey, Excellent Paul, class. You know how you get rid of that flag? How? You start a new church and you don't take it with you. <laughs> that may be it. That may be it. I, I Yeah. That's right, the iconography. Right. That's the iconography there, right? Like that's that's part of the iconography. It's like you can't you can't mess with the icons. I, it's always been there. This is the way that we do it. You know, it's tradition. <laughs> okay, good class, and we'll look forward. Uh, we'll, next week we'll do Philemon, and then plan for week eight, in which we'll hear of everybody's projects or presentations. Excellent class. Thank you guys. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.